Hello, everybody. I am John Allen, the editor of Crux. This is Last Week in the Church, the show rigorously, unalterably, inextricably devoted to telling you things about the Vatican and the Catholic Church you already know and taking almost a half hour to do it. Here's what we've got uh, on this week's menu. A major papal slapdown for the Latin Mass, a looming showdown on a controversial anti-homophobia law, the Pope is out of bed and full of beans. That's a Simpsons reference in case you didn't get it. In any event, Pope Francis is back in the Vatican after 10 days in Rome's Gemelli Hospital. Two trials on trial. Two major Vatican trials reach critical crossroads. One, the end, the other, the beginning. And finally, Italy's soccer coach and the secret to effective leadership. That's what's waiting for you on the other side this week. So please, please, on bended knee, I beg you, stick around. We begin this week with a major papal decision uh, regarding the Latin Mass. That's what it's colloquially called in Catholic conversation, although it's a misnomer because the truth of it is every Mass of the Catholic Church more or less can be said in Latin, but uh, including the ordinary Mass we celebrate, most Catholics celebrate every Sunday in their local parish church. But Uh, We're talking about the pre-Vatican II Latin Mass, the so-called Tridentine Rite, because it was codified by the Council of Trent. Uh, What what happened uh, is that after the Second Vatican Council, the old Latin Mass, the pre-Vatican II Mass, was more or less suppressed by St. Paul VI, although special permission was given to priests and communities that were, for one reason or another, especially attached to the old mass. But the idea was, over time, it would be replaced by the new one, the one approved by the Second Vatican Council. Now, beginning under uh, Pope St. Pope John Paul II, and to a significantly greater degree under Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, uh, those two popes begin liberalizing permission for celebrating the old mass, on the grounds that it represented a legitimate expression of the church's liturgical patrimony, there clearly were some people really attached to it, uh, including people who weren't even born uh, at the time of Vatican II. Uh, And those two popes took the position that, well, you can have both things at once. You can have the new mass and the old mass, the old mass to a more limited extent, But you can have it on a fairly regular basis. And this all culminated in 2007 when Benedict XVI issued a ruling called Sumorum Pontificium, which basically created wide permission for priests to celebrate the Old Mass as what he called the extraordinary form of the Roman Rite, with the post-Vatican II Mass being the ordinary form, the one that most Catholics experience every time they show up on Sunday. Now, uh, what happened over the weekend uh, is that Pope uh, Francis essentially abrogated that decision by Pope Benedict. He has imposed significant new restrictions uh, on celebration of the old Latin Mass. Uh, Among them, from now on, the Latin Mass can't be celebrated in parishes. Now, that doesn't mean that parishes that already celebrate the the old Latin Mass have to stop. 
uh, but new ones cannot be added. He also ruled that every priest ordained after the effective date of his law uh, would require the permission of his bishop to celebrate the old Latin Mass, and that bishop would have to have the permission of the Vatican. Uh, so, obviously, the idea is that permission would be fairly hard to get. They don't want new priests celebrating the old mass. Uh, all of this apparently calculated to have the effect that over time, the old Latin mass will basically pass away, uh, and the new post, although it's kind of silly to call something new that's almost 60 years old at this point, but uh, in any event, the post-Vatican II uh, Latin mass will become the norm across the board. Now, uh, reactions to this decision are predictably politically polarized. Uh, what you have uh, is one camp that never liked Benedict XVI, giving uh, a kind of green light to resurrecting the old pre-Vatican II Mass, who thought it was, you know, a, a compromise or a rollback on the vision of Vatican II, that are hailing this decision as gutsy, prophetic, long overdue, uh, and right on the money. Now, you have another camp uh, that never liked the new mass, the post-Vatican II mass, for a variety of reasons, that is almost fanatically devoted to the old one, uh, that is describing this as cowardly, cruel, uh, a papal stab in the back, uh, and pretty much any other negative characterization you can think of. Uh, so that is the state of things. Now, one of the interesting questions to ask about this, bear in mind, Pope Francis uh, is the pope who came into office talking about the need for decentralization, right? Synodality, which is kind of more or less a synonym for decentralization, uh, has become one of the watchwords of his papacy. He has a whole synod on synodality uh, coming up in 2022, and yet this is a pretty raw exercise of central authority, right? I mean, this is the Pope just saying, you can't do that. Now, uh, so how do we explain the fact that Pope Francis was willing to invoke central authority in this case, when in some ways it kind of stands in tension with his broader vision of things? And to make things even more complex, let's throw in another situation. Uh, in which the Pope has resisted the use of ecclesiastical authority. Uh, and that is the question of the reception of communion by pro-choice Catholic politicians. You'll remember earlier this summer, the U.S. bishops voted to move forward with a document that might include a section uh, saying that pro-choice Catholic politicians, up to and including U.S. President Joe Biden, shouldn't be receiving the Eucharist. Now, prior to that vote, the Vatican, Pope Francis's guys, uh, had issued several warnings uh, to the U.S. bishops, urging them not to do that. Uh, and ever since, the Pope has made it clear he has no interest uh, in bringing the hammer down. Uh, and so the question is, on these two sort of issues of core Catholic faith and practice, uh, that is communion uh, and uh, how you celebrate the Mass, the Pope, in one instance, seems allergic to using church authority, and in another instance, is entirely willing to do so. Uh, how, how do you explain that? 
Well, here's what I would suggest. Look at the language that the Pope uses in both cases and the language of his aides, his closest advisors. In both instances, that is the communion debate and the, the Latin mass debate, what they will talk about is what they call the weaponization, the political weaponization of the faith. In the communion debate, what they're concerned about is the people really pushing for these communion bans aren't just concerned about coherence with Catholic teaching, they're concerned with getting a Republican back into the White House. In other words, the, the theory is they are operating for political motives. And in the Latin mass debate, what they're concerned about is that the people who are most vocal about their adherence to the Latin mass aren't just concerned with how they say the mass. This is part of a broader indictment of everything that has happened in the Catholic Church since Vatican II up to and including the papacy of Pope Francis. So in both cases, what the Pope appears to be reacting to is a perceived ideological manipulation of the faith. Now, is that you know, a proper judgment? I mean, you could argue it. I mean, you could argue it on policy. Is it a good idea to clamp down on celebration of a theologically legitimate form of the Catholic Mass that many Catholics are passionately devoted to? You could have a conversation about that. Uh, is the Pope entirely consistent about this ideological manipulation thing? I mean, some people would say that by wrapping, for instance, Greta Thunberg and the anti-climate change movement in the papal flag, he himself uh, has weaponized or ideologized the faith. All that is legitimate to discuss, but I think what is important to understand here uh, is that what Pope Francis appears to be trying to do anyway uh, is insist that politics should be over here and Catholic faith and worship should be over here. They intersect, but they are not the same thing. And at least as far as principles go, it's probably something worth maintaining. All right, second, uh, a looming showdown on Italy's controversial draft anti-homophobia law. You will remember that earlier this summer, the Vatican broke hundreds of years of diplomatic precedent to file a formal diplomatic protest against a law being considered by the Italian parliament before it was even adopted. Uh, this is a law called the DDL Zahn. Uh, DDL is, uh, basically means a bill, and Zahn is the name of the openly gay legislator who introduced this bill. Uh, and it basically intends to create a law specifically to fight anti-homophobia. Uh, now, uh, various uh, players in Italian society uh, have objected to this law, uh, including the Italian Bishops' Conference, CE, uh, which has argued uh, repeatedly on different occasions that this law risks violating religious freedom in at least two specific ways. One, uh, they believe that the definition of hate speech in the law, that is speech against the LGBTQ plus community, is so broad and so vague uh, that it could end up criminalizing public expressions of traditional Catholic teaching on marriage, that it's between a man and a woman and for life. They also believe that a requirement in the law that all schools, including private Catholic schools, uh, celebrate a day against homophobia 
and utilize a state-approved curricula for that day risks undercutting the teaching of traditional Catholic values in those Catholic schools. Now, uh, the Vatican has actually filed what is known as a nota verbale, that is a formal diplomatic protest with the Italian government sort of reiterating those objections. When news of that broke, it caused, it caused a firestorm uh, all up and down Italy with lots of Italians, even some of those with reservations about the Zan bill, honestly, uh, saying that the Vatican basically ought to keep its nose out of Italian business. You had centuries of keeping us under your thumb is sort of the way the reaction goes. Uh, but we're free now. Uh, we're not under your control. Uh, and so, you know, keep your nose out of our business. Uh, now, uh, what is happening now is that this law, which was approved last fall uh, in the lower chamber of the Italian parliament, is currently before the Senate. Tomorrow is the deadline for senators to submit amendments to the law. Then the Senate will vote on those amendments, and finally they will vote on the law itself, probably sometime this week. Uh, if the Senate votes to approve the law as is, then it becomes the law of the land. Uh, right now, the outcome is deeply uncertain. It looks like it's going to be extremely close. There are a handful of undecided senators who will make the difference, and we frankly don't know how they're going to break. Interesting point about all this is that when the Senate resumed debate last week, everything under the sun was brought up by various participants in the debate. The Italian Constitution, uh, Italy's history of what the Italians call apertura, uh, openness uh, to people, uh, the role of the family in Italian society, all kinds of things. You know the one thing that never, ever came up was the Vatican intervention. It was the dog that didn't bark. Uh, I just think it is fascinating that after the Vatican set aside hundreds of years of how they normally do business to make this unique intervention, it's as if it never happened. It's a non-factor. It's a non-entity in the current debate. If you want to know why that is, I think it's a couple of things. One, Pope Francis has sent several signals that he may not be entirely on board with this intervention. At least that's how it's been interpreted by most Italians, and the Pope hasn't corrected that. So I think many proponents of this law aren't really quite sure the Pope and the Vatican are their enemy. And many supporter, or many critics rather, uh, many opponents uh, of this law aren't really quite sure the Pope and the Vatican are their ally. Uh, and when you're not sure, better to not embarrass yourself. I think the other thing uh, is that this perceived interference by the, the Vatican in Italian affairs, the perceived attempt to override Italian sovereignty, whether that is or is not what this actually was, the perception was bad, uh, and it elicited a tremendously negative public reaction. I don't think anybody's anxious to relive that again. But in any event, the fascinating thing is that the chips are now down. The Italian Senate probably is going to decide this week whether this anti-homophobia bill becomes a law. And the one party that seemed to be shouting the loudest a month ago is absolutely mute as this showdown looms. All right, Pope is out of bed and full of beans. Again, a Simpsons reference, Millhouse was once 
tremendously depressed about something and wouldn't get out of bed, Bart finally confessed he was responsible for the thing that Milhouse was upset about. Milhouse recovered his strength uh, to attack Bart, uh, and they began rolling around on the floor attempting to pummel one another. Milhouse's mom was delighted just to see Milhouse dynamic again and said to the dad, Milhouse is out of bed and full of beans. Well, the same could be said of Pope Francis. Pope Francis spent a good deal of time in a hospital bed for 10 days, uh, beginning on Sunday, July 4th. Uh, the Vatican originally told us that day that Pope Francis was going into the Gemelli Hospital for a planned colon surgery. Now, I, you know, nobody has any reason to think that that's not true, although I would just note that if this was a plan, it was a plan not really shared with anybody, uh, certainly not told to those of us in the press, because it fell out of a clear blue sky for us. Uh, but in any event, we're originally told he's going in for a colon surgery. Then after the surgery, we're told everything is great. The Pope is doing really well. We'll keep you posted. Then we are told he's going to spend seven days in the hospital, so a week. So we're thinking Sunday to Sunday, he'll be back in the Vatican for the Angelus uh, the, the next Sunday. Uh, then when Sunday draws around, uh, he's still in the hospital, and we're told he's going to have to stay an extra few days uh, just to make sure that everything is fine. And then finally, uh, on Wednesday, uh, he's released, uh, and he goes back to the Vatican. So that this past Sunday, he did this, the Angelus address in the Vatican as normal and has, for every, from everything we can tell, maintained a full calendar, including, uh, as we've already noted, releasing this historic decision on the Latin Mass. Uh, now, what's the long-term fallout of this 10-day hospitalization by Pope Francis? Well, he got a, largely he got a free pass. I mean, the, the press corps more or less took the Vatican at its word when they said, this is not life-threatening, he's doing fine, he's going to be okay. But I would suggest every subsequent time the Pope has to cancel some public event for a health-related reason, the next time he has to go to the Gemelli, uh, public opinion, the press, is not going to be so kind. That is, we have entered the era with Pope Francis of the papal health scare, where from now on, every small hiccup in his health uh, is going to be overinterpreted. Uh, every high will be overinterpreted, and every low will be overinterpreted. So buckle in, uh, it's going to get a little bumpy from here. Uh, also, what these papal health scares do uh, is that they tend to kickstart conversation about two things. One is who's going to be the next pope. Uh, now, that conversation has been going on for a while, and we will no doubt have occasion to come to it another time. The other conversation that goes on is, what do we need to do between now and then? You know, what, what are the, the gaps that need to be filled? What are the preparations that need to be made? And here's one conversation I am actually hoping will once again rise to the surface during this period which is the question of what to do about an incapacitated pope. Now, this question came up a lot during the late John Paul years, as his Parkinson's disease obviously became progressively and steadily worse. His range of motion, his ability to speak, his energy levels became steadily more compromised. The question was, suppose 
the Pope ends up completely incapacitated. That is, he's alive, but he can't think, he can't communicate, he obviously can't make decisions, and we don't know how long that's going to go on. What happened? Well, the truth is right now the Catholic Church has no mechanism for removing an incapacitated pope. Uh, what we know is that uh, St. Paul VI had actually anticipated this scenario. Shortly after he was elected, he left a letter in his desk and he told his private secretary about it, which empowered the dean of the College of Cardinals and other cardinals who were in Rome at the time to declare, if he ever became capacitated, to declare the See of Rome vacant and to start the process towards electing a successor. Now, the problem is that many canon lawyers who have looked at this have said, yeah, but uh, Canon 332 of the Code of Canon Law says that for a pope to resign, uh, it has to be free. Uh, it has to be an independent decision made by him. Now, Paul VI wrote that letter in 1965, but suppose he hadn't become incapacitated until 1975. How do we know he hadn't changed his mind? How do we know when the dean said the see is vacant that this is actually what Paul wanted? Uh, and so they would say this is, it, legally, it's a problem. It would certainly cast a shadow of doubt about the legitimacy uh, of whatever happened next. Uh, so a lot of legal experts in the church say the church needs to adopt a clear, transparent procedure for declaring uh, the papacy vacant, uh, and that that decision needs to be empowered to somebody. Uh, the most likely body would be the entire College of Cardinals acting unanimously, or at least functionally unanimously, um, so that there wouldn't be any sense that this is a political maneuver. Uh, this is a problem that a lot of experts said needed to be resolved uh, in the John Paul years, but they said it won't be because it would be seen as insensitive to do it while John Paul is still alive. They predicted it would happen under Benedict. For one reason or another, it never happened under Benedict. And for one reason or another, it still hasn't happened under Pope Francis. Perhaps this particular moment we have, when Pope Francis is clearly still on top of his game, clearly still alert and capable of making his own independent decisions, uh, but in which we've had a reminder, not only of his mortality, but of the various ways that mortality could play out, perhaps this will become a moment to return to that conversation. Uh, all right, very quickly, two Vatican trials on trial. Last week, a trial involving charges of sexual abuse at a pre-seminary on Vatican grounds that's a facility for young men pre-college age discerning a vocation to the priesthood, essentially wrapped up with final arguments from lawyers. Sentencing is now scheduled for October 6th. Meanwhile, eight days from today on July 27th, we will have the first hearing in a historic Vatican trial with a cardinal as kind of the, the bombshell defendant, uh, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu and nine other defendants along with three corporate entities uh, have been charged with financial crimes and corruption. The expectation is that that July 27th hearing is going to be mostly procedural uh, and then the whole thing will be adjourned until September or October because the one thing you can take to the bank is that nobody, and I mean nobody, here in Italy 
wants to work in August during the traditional Ferragosto, that's the middle August holidays, when every Italian heads either for the beach or the mountains or both. So likely thing is both of these trials will resume in the fall. Now both of them raise significant challenges and question marks for the Vatican to respond to. Uh, in the sex abuse at the pre-seminary trial, here's the thing. The conduct described in this trial, and by the way, the testimony covered not only the specific charge of abuse uh, for which one former seminarian and the rector have been indicted, uh, but it also covers what was described as a hyper-sexualized environment uh, in this pre-seminary. Uh, and this wasn't 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, we're talking about essentially five, 10 years ago. After the reforming efforts in the church uh, on sex abuse had already kicked in, uh, after Pope Francis was elected for part of it. Uh, and the question is, how could something like that be happening under the Pope's nose? Uh, how is it possible that this kind of hypersexualized, abusive, manipulative uh, environment grew up and metastasized not only on Vatican grounds, but in an era in which this kind of thing supposedly was consigned to the past. I'm not sure that's a question this trial is going to answer, but it won, it's certainly one that looms over it. Uh, in the Bechu et al. Uh, proceedings uh, that are going to begin on the 27th uh, of this month, the obvious question is, is Angelo Bechu really the villain of this story he's ma been made out to be by Vatican prosecutors? Or uh, is he, in the immortal words of Lee Harvey Oswald, a patsy, a fall guy? Uh, there are critics of this process who believe uh, that if the London real estate scandal for which these people have been charged actually was criminal, then the real indictees, that is the defendants, ought to be the senior officials in the Vatican who approved it explicitly in writing. That would be Italian Cardinal Pietro Padolin, the Pope's Secretary of State, and Venezuelan Archbishop Edgar Peña Pada, the Pope's substitute, number two official at the Secretary of State. Uh, yet, these are Pope Francis loyalists, guys Pope Francis relies on, uh, not only have they not been indicted, Paroline has hired his own lawyer because he feels uh, that he's being injured by the mere fact of this process, uh, or at least there's threat. Uh, so the question here is, is the trial going to show that Paroline and Peña Parra really were completely innocent and that the fault lies exclusively with Bechu, the former substitute, uh, or is the trial going to provide legitimate reason to think uh, that what's actually going on here uh, is that guys the Pope likes are being protected, guys the Pope doesn't are taking the fall? We'll see, but that's the question the Vatican has to answer. And then very finally, biggest story uh, in the Italian press today uh, is the story of the, the coach of the Italian soccer team, Roberto Mancini, uh, who, after their historic win of the European Championship this summer, or a week and a half ago, 
Uh, Mancini went back to the Italian region of Le Marche, where he's from, to visit his parents in Jesse. And he was photographed standing in line outside a butcher shop uh, in Jesse in order to pick up some stuff for his mom, who recently had a knee problem and can't do her own shopping. And this just became a cause celeb all across Italy about how cool it is. Uh, that Mancini is acting like an ordinary person and not thinking of himself as above everyone else. What this really is, folks, is a reminder that people expect remarkably little from their leaders. All they really want uh, is a sense that their leaders understand them, care about them, have a sense of what's going on in their life. And after that, whether that leader adopts this policy or that, uh, whether he says the right thing or not on a particular occasion, all that can be forgiven. They just want a sense that there's some comprehension and some empathy there. So for everyone who is in leadership in the Catholic Church, uh, let's make sure that we have the Mancini, or Mancini as they would say here, the Mancini lesson firmly in our mind. Show people you care. Show people you're one of them, and they will forgive you almost anything. All right, that is our show for this week. Thank you for watching. want to remind you uh, to go on the Crux site where you'll find full coverage of all the stories we've talked about. That is cruxnow.com, cruxnow.com. If you like Last Week in the Church, also want to plead, beg, urge, exhort, cajole you uh, to go on the social media platform of your choice. Uh, give us a like, give us a thumbs up, give us a retweet, uh, whatever, I don't know, uh, there are probably a whole bunch of other terms, I don't know, uh, but just tell people you like it, uh, because we'd like to expose this show to as many eyeballs as humanly possible. Uh, we will be back here next Monday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, have a fantastic and blessed week. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk to you again soon.